if we can accomplish one thing with this Midwestern studies revival movement, it's to get people to think about place and uh, regions a little bit more. That's John Lauk, an attorney, historian, and the author of The Lost Region Toward a Revival of Midwestern History. Today I talk with John about his leadership of a new movement among writers and historians to revive interest in and enthusiasm about the American Midwest. John and I discuss why this region is important to American history, culture, and politics, and why folks on the coasts or in the south might want to think more deeply about it. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this is Common Ground. John Lauk has, for the past couple years, been convening conferences, hosting panels, writing and editing books, and even co-founding journals all about the American Midwest. That flurry of activity is pretty remarkable, given that John spends half his time as senior advisor to South Dakota Senator John Thune. So, one asks, why all the work? Well, as John would put it, in comparison to such regions as the South, the Far West, and New England, The Midwest and its culture has been neglected. And this neglect, which John laments and wants to do something about, has been both scholarly and popular. Historians, as well as literary and art critics, we learn, tend not to examine the Midwest seriously in their critical work, while the myth of the Midwest has not, in the popular imagination, ascended to the level of the proud literary South, the cultured democratic Northeast, or the hip, innovative West Coast. Jen and I talk about the status of the Midwest in the national imagination and discuss why a sense of regional rootedness might still be important in our global age. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this interview with John Lauk. My first question, I was thinking maybe we could just start with the title of your book because in many ways this book is uh, the manifesto for the revival of Midwestern history. So the title is, quote, The Lost Region toward a revival of Midwestern history. Why do you refer to the Midwest as lost? The backstory on uh, that title has to do with the book I wrote uh, prior to the Lost Region, which was called Prairie Republic, the Political Culture of Dakota Territory. And that book I had to write, or I was prompted to write by an obligation to teach a class on the history of South Dakota when I was teaching at South Dakota State University. And I noticed that the biggest immigrant group into South Dakota, and I'm talking about Americans moving into South Dakota, not immigrants from across the pond, but the biggest immigrant group into South Dakota was Midwesterners. Mm -hmm. 85% of the people who settled the eastern tier of South Dakota were from places like Michigan and Ohio and Indiana and Wisconsin. And if you go through the list of territorial governors and early governors of South Dakota and all our senators, they're all Midwesterners Mm -hmm. because this is where they came from. And I didn't get the point very well developed in that first book, but I wanted to follow up and do an academic article about what exactly does it mean for the political culture of Dakota Territory that all these early leaders were Midwesterners Mm -hmm. 
and the bulk of the population was Midwestern. And so I thought that would be a really easy thing to do. And I was thinking about a classic 25-page academic article. Maybe I would send it off to the journal South Dakota History or something like that. And I thought I would set aside three months to pull all of this together. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I started doing was looking for the foundational texts for Midwestern history. And there really weren't any. Mm -hmm. So nothing that was being taught in classes, no sort of like central works in Midwestern history? Okay. Because you know how historiography works Mm -hmm. and the academy works. If you have a big question or you kind of stumble into a question, you can kind of follow all the rabbit trails down and find out what the big questions are, what the key books are, what people in this field have been debating about, find the key journals. And so I, I made that classic academic move or maneuver to go into a field and kind of figure out what the um, what's the larger constellation of books and right. figures and key issues were and as I did that I couldn't find very much and one day it just dawned on me this field has basically died there's really not much to draw on so the field, so you said the field died, which means that at one point it was alive. So was the Midwest on the radar of most academics at one point in time? I would say in the early 20th century, and I would say from about 1900 to 1940, because everything kind of changes with the war. But during that 40-year period, there was a very strong and robust field of Midwestern history. What we now know... Uh, as the Journal of American History, which is the flagship journal for American historians. This used to be a Midwestern journal. It was called the Mississippi Valley Historical Review. And it came out of a meeting in Lincoln, Nebraska in 1907, where the heads of state historical societies in the Midwest, they were all Midwesterners, met in Lincoln and decided, you know what, our history is being ignored by the Ivies. It's Mm -hmm. being ignored by Yale and Princeton and Harvard, and they control the American Historical Association, and they're locking us out. Mm -hmm. And so as part of this kind of populist mentality of the 1890s, which kind of spilled over into the early 20th century, these historians came together and said, no one's going to tell this history unless we do it. Because the American Historical Association is a very uh, elitist organization. This was, a, this was an accurate indictment. Mm-hmm. And if you go back and look at the history of the American historical profession, say Peter Novick's book, That Noble Dream about the history of the profession, you know, the, um, the profession was very much dominated by the Ivies and a few southern schools mm-hmm. like Johns Hopkins, etc., But there was very little interest in what was going on out beyond the Ohio River. And um, the people in places like uh, Harvard and and Columbia and NYU, no offense, I know you're (laughs) soon to darken the doors of NYU, but uh, they focused on the Constitution, Mm. they focused on New England, they focused on the English the Anglo-centric components of American history. And they also focused on European history in the Middle Ages 
and all these things that had very little to do with the Midwest. Well, did the, and would you say that they focused on those, especially those major cities in the east on the east coast, because those were the centers of power, or was it a sort of parochialism that just wouldn't account for the actual important things going on in the Midwest? I think it's both. I mean, it's it's a obvious choice for people at Harvard in the mm-hmm. Harvard History Department to focus on New England and the Puritans because that's their history. Mm-hmm. But they had uh, very little interest in looking beyond the Hudson River out into the Midwest, out into the hinterlands, which, as they saw it, didn't have much of a history. There wasn't anything interesting going on mm-hmm. there. There was no drama. And uh, as a result, the people who ended up out in the Midwest and became professors at small, often land-grant universities in the Midwest decided they needed to develop their own field. And the classic example of this is Frederick Jackson Turner Mm -hmm. up in Madison, Wisconsin, who in the 1880s and 1890s, he was half of the history department at Madison. He was one of two people in the department. And that seems strange to say these days when it's such a huge department now and has 50 or 60 historians right. in it. But back then, uh, these, were, these were small departments and a few people could make a big difference. And so working with these historical society directors in the Midwest, they launched the Mississippi Valley Historical Association. And it was very active for half a century. So what was, I mean, what was Turner's central project then? Well, after his famous speech in Chicago about the frontier, um, which he said, in, in which the argument was essentially that, you know, we can't just focus on American life as being derived from these seeds or germs that were planted in the United States by Europeans. We need to think about how the United States developed on its own and its own peculiar historical dynamics Mm -hmm. like the frontier, which obviously had a major influence on American life. But that was just a small slice of, um, of Turner's thinking. I would say his larger project, if you were to somehow quantify it or weigh how much work he did on, on various aspects of his, of, his, uh, of his life, I would say the bigger project was regionalism mm-hmm. and trying to explain to people how American regions are different and, and how they derive from uh, different origins. And, and, this, and he unfortunately used the term sections when he was doing his writing. And so I think when a lot of people run across these old Turner articles, they kind of associate it with maybe the Civil War and sectionalism. And he should have used the term regionalism. This is the more acceptable or Mm well-known term for Mm -hmm. what he was trying to do. And sectionalism was kind of tainted by 19th century events in, in the United States. But... So this became his central project, and for many years uh, he devoted his energies to it. And he ultimately put out a book in 1932 at the end of his life that focused on uh, regions. Now, there is an expert at the uh, Finding the Lost Region conference this year and last year, Michael Steiner, who taught for 40 years at Cal State Fullerton, Uh, wrote these amazing articles in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, trying to get people to pay attention to Turner's regionalism 
and not focus so much on the frontier. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, everyone identifies him with the frontier and the whole field of, of the new Western history kind of premised itself on attacking Turner for being sort of focusing on the Anglo-centric frontier. So, and this is the sort of manifest destiny idea. That's the, the what's the frontier idea, if you were to summarize it. Well, Turner uh, tried to convince these Eastern historians that the key to American e- economic development and political development was the frontier and how right. it changed American life, and the Easterners were too focused on how America was like England, right. essentially. And us, uh, maybe us Irishmen here, uh, are good good people to pull back the mm-hmm. curtain on this and mm-hmm. support Turner a little bit, and try to get historians to focus a little bit less on the frontier side of it and focus on the other things that he was trying to talk about. Well, so in your book, you talk a bit about the the group you call the uh, Prairie historians, the people who sort of followed Turner's work on regionalism. So, what was their significance in the historical uh, uh, field? Well, they immediately after Turner kind of laid down the the gauntlet, they decided that they agreed with him, and so they would build up these institutions to support Midwestern history at key Midwestern universities. Mm-hmm. So at the University of Illinois, the University of Iowa, University of Wisconsin, of course, and they were extremely successful. And uh, so because they were at these central points for intellectual development of young scholars, they had a major impact on the field, and they created successors, and their students would go out into smaller colleges and and teach classes on Midwestern history. Unfortunately, this is what we've lost. We don't have people in key strategic positions Mm -hmm. at major Midwestern universities teaching the next generation about the history of this region and passing it on and having seminars where people right. write research papers that turn into dissertations and books about the region. Well, there's a, I think there's a substance of uh, sort of question to be asked about that, which is, I mean, we so often hear that ours is a global age and that we're dealing with a globalized economy and we're dealing with transnational issues. And that's something that's really um, uh, occupying historians today. I mean, why why should we at this point in the 21st century refocus on regional rootedness? Is that still a meaningful category? I think so. I think, and let me make let me answer your point by saying this: if you take a look at the Sunday New York Times, mm-hmm. so this would be late May 2016, there was an article. This was in the uh, Week in Review section. And uh, it was by a sociologist, I can't remember the name right now, but the point of it was that Americans are moving a lot less than they used to. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are staying in one place. They are putting down more roots than they did in the past. And I think there are a number of explanations for this relating to economic uh, health of the country. And, And I think another big explanation is just the Internet and being able to stay connected and being able to work from a lot of different places that you weren't able to work from in the past. I mean, in the past, if your boss called and said, well, you have to move to LA to, uh, for this job, you know, that's what you did. Mm-hmm. But now it's, it's less, 
important. There's a lot of people who telecommute, and there's a lot of people who use Skype, and, and here we are. We're doing a podcast, right. and this podcast can be picked up in seconds by anybody around the world. I mean, it used to be, I mean, you recommended this to me, Joe. Um, last week, I watched, or I listened to, I should say, at the gym, no mm-hmm. less, this lecture by this Yale literature mm-hmm. professor about Richard Wright. And uh, you pointed this out to me because I'm working on the aspect of uh, uh, the Midwestern aspect of Richard Wright's career. Right. He spent 10 years in Chicago, which I found sort of interesting. But in, in 1962, I never would have had access mm-hmm. to that unless I you know, was an undergraduate literature major, English major at Yale. But now we have um, access to so much more stuff that we don't, we don't have to be in a certain spot to take advantage of it. Anyway, to right. answer your question, I, I, I was saying that fewer people are moving these days. So I think there should be some recalibration of our level of interest in regions and roots and where we're from and what it means to be in a particular spot. So I, I, so I want to agree, so I'll just throw this, I'll throw this out as a final. So right after I sent you that video about Richard Wright, you responded with this great video of the James Baldwin-William uh, F. Buckley debate in 62 in which Buckley is absolutely thrashed by Baldwin on the, <laughs> the Oxford <laughs> Union, right? Uh, which made me feel rather cosmopolitan uh, because I was watching this debate between these two fascinating historical figures in the 60s in Oxford. I mean, does the sort of internet age, even though we can all stay in one place, does it, does it make us all, what was the phrase that Michael Durda used in his review, very enthusiastic review of your book? He called it a sort of rootless cosmopolitanism. Um, I'm, I'm just, I am wondering what today can historians tell us about our rootedness in region um, that will illuminate our, our understanding of ourselves as as members of a country or even an international community? Well, I think there's a couple levels to this. I think that we are, even if we're not completely conscious of it, I think we are influenced by where we are. And uh, I think, and I just wrote an essay about this for a book that came out from University of Utah Press, uh, trying to make the point that even if we're not completely conscious of it all the time, All of us get up in the morning, we go for our morning jog, we drive to work, and we're doing this in a particular space. And that space has been determined by a lot of social forces and history, so it does have some impact on us. So, but that's, that's one side of it. But now, remember, we're talking about historians, and we're talking about American history. And I don't think anybody would dispute the fact that in the past, there was a higher degree of rootedness by Americans or whoever. And um, people often uh, would grow up in a certain town and maybe the farthest they went was 20 miles to the county seat or whatever. So from a historical perspective, rootedness and feelings of regionalism uh, would be a major force. Now, in the academy these days, there's you know a lot of focus on uh, social forces mm-hmm. related to race, class, gender, mm-hmm. etc. This has become uh, these have become prominent foci for 
intellectuals. Um, and they all relate to identity and how a person's identity is formed or shaped. Well, I would submit to you as important as those three, mm-hmm. and I think more important, would be a person's place or where they come from. You may remember last year's conference, we had uh, Professor John Miller talking about his new book, which is uh, a very straightforward discussion of the impact of growing up in the Midwest mm-hmm. for all these famous people that went on to you know major careers uh, doing various things, Sam Walton and Johnny Carson mm-hmm. and, and all these folks. Um, but many of them talked about how growing up where they did uh, impacted the course of their lives. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Midwestern. I was raised in Michigan. Um, I've been thinking a bit about, so I, I agree. I think, I think I feel I'm haggling with this a lot because I feel Midwestern. And when I go to coast cities, I am called the Midwestern. And it's not just because of the fact that people hear my nose through my mouth and through my voice, right? It's not just my nasally voice. I mean, it's the fact that I am a certain way. I, there's Midwestern niceness, right? And I, I'm wondering, so these, call them stereotypes or just simple characterizations. I mean, these characteristics that are assigned to Midwesterners in many ways, to what extent are they real and valid, do you think? And to what extent are they just fantasies or constructions? Well, I think there has to be something to them. I right. mean, we've all noticed this. Um, this is a common fact of life for a lot of people that live in various places. They just bring this up. People from here act a certain way. I realize in this world of, um, of fears, of essentializing, right. that everyone gets very nervous when you start to say, well, Midwesterners are like this. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a very good essay in a recent newsletter by the American Historical Association about this notion of essentializing. And um, the author, who was an historian, said, you know what, we need, we've kind of overcorrected mm-hmm. for the problem of essentializing in the past. Because mm-hmm. essentializing in the past could have some very... Um, you know, dire consequences in which, you know, stereotypes were applied to certain groups and and they suffered because of it. But this historian was making the point that essentializing in its mild or sort of innocent uh, version is simply saying this particular group tends to have characteristics like this. Right, right. What fascinates you most about the Midwest? If you were to talk with a non-Midwesterner or a quote-unquote coast coasty about about your 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 region um and you were to innocently essentialize our our region what would you say what's most fascinating what 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 should they know about us and how should that affect their understanding of their own nation well i just think it's important at a very general level for people to know their own story Mm -hmm. they need to understand where they come from and why they are the way they are Mm -hmm. and i think that makes us all stronger human beings i think it makes us more complex human beings i think it makes us better citizens Mm -hmm. and if you only have a very general vacuous um, understanding of your own identity i think it makes you um, 
less of a human being. Mm -hmm. But back to this point about essentializing just for a moment, Mm -hmm. because it just occurred to me that, you know, you asked this question about, is it, is it true that Midwesterners are nicer or whatever? I mean, this is very difficult to quantify. I think there's a lot to it, but, um, and this is something as we're promoting Midwestern studies, it would be fun to have people, um, dig into, um, but I was thinking about this recently, and I hate to actually bring up the name Trump, but yeah. I was thinking about this. We're only 30 in, minutes in. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> to the interview. I'm surprised it didn't come up sooner. I was thinking about this as it relates to Trump, because right. a couple of months ago, Trump was in campaigning in Wisconsin, and I had CNN on, and it was a debate or a town hall or something. And this nice uh, Midwestern woman who was a teacher got up and I think it was in Kenosha or she was from Kenosha and she said you know I I uh, my family suffered a lot because of the um, the problems faced by the auto industry and my husband worked in a industrial uh, plant and he lost his job and I understand what you're saying about free trade and I you know I I sort of sympathize with you, but I really would like to ask you, Mr. Trump, can you just be a little bit nicer? Right. And I don't really right. like all these insults. And could you just act a little bit differently? And you might be able to get my vote. And mm-hmm. I thought, I sat back and I thought, you know what? That was a very Midwestern moment. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the electoral map, where has Trump um, performed? the worst. It's in the Midwest. I mean, he ended up losing Iowa. He lost Wisconsin. He lost Minnesota. He lost Nebraska. He lost Kansas. Uh, He lost Ohio. Mm -hmm. I think there's something to this. I think it was, I think Donald Trump is kind of a shock to the civic order Mm -hmm. in the Midwest, where this is not that common to act like this. I think there is a kind of New York braggadocio associated with Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. this is kind of his brand mm-hmm. that doesn't play as well in the Midwest. So I think there's an essentializing or some some essentializing we can do um, on, on the Midwestern front. You know, we need to be careful about it. But let's face it, regions are different. Uh, places are different. And... I think uh, if we can accomplish one thing, uh, one larger thing with this Midwestern studies revival movement, it's to get people to think about place and uh, regions a little bit more. Can we talk a bit about your unique role as an academic? Uh, So you're you're contributing to this new research and sort of blazing these new scholarly trails, um, but you're also a sort of scholar activist, for lack of a better term, or perhaps a scholar entrepreneur, and that you're leading this revival. So you're not just writing books, but you started the Midwestern, or helped start uh, with a number of other scholars, the Midwestern History Association, uh, the Middle West Review, uh, and you're often on, in fact, about a half hour ago, you were just on NPR. Uh, So I guess my first question about that is, you know, how do you, or how have you started a revival in the academy. Uh, What's it like leading a movement of academics and scholars? Well, I think uh, I've been very, very fortunate in that a couple of people stepped forward right away to be very supportive 
um, and to give a boost to this effort. And, and uh, they supplied a lot of uh, energy to this effort right from the very beginning. And as it turns out, they had Midwestern roots, mm-hmm. and so they were very sympathetic to mm-hmm. this. I think a, a few minutes ago you mentioned Michael Durda at the Washington Post mm-hmm. doing a review of the Lost Region. Well, I saw Michael Durda at a writing conference a couple months after that, and we were chatting at the bar having a beer, and uh, he said, you know, I really liked your book. Uh, I grew up in Lorain, Ohio, huh. and uh, I'm a Midwesterner, and I've often s- thought the same thing why does my region get overlooked and that's why i decided to review your book out of the hundreds of books that arrive at the washington post every day for them to choose to write a review but that's why he decided to do it that's interesting that's because lorraine is where uh tony morrison is from as well it's a sort of literary place i guess it's that's exactly right uh and the other thing um just to follow up on the tony morrison point um, in terms of regions, if you read, there's an essay in which Toni Morrison is talking about her father mm-hmm. being from Georgia and how much um, the Morrison family loved being in Ohio. And they thought Lorraine was a nice little Midwestern town mm-hmm. where everyone was mixed together, the whites and the blacks. Mm-hmm and the Yugoslavians, and the Poles, and all these different groups. And uh, Toni Morrison talked about how her father would comment to her about, this is an entirely different world than Georgia. You have no idea about the racial strictures back in Georgia. And he he loved Lorraine. Now, I know uh, some of these Midwestern cities, uh, Detroit, Chicago, etc., have uh, you know suffer from racial strife and there are there was residential segregation when some of the great migration right. African Americans arrived here, but I think a really interesting area of research would be um, looking into these medium-sized cities uh, in the Midwest like Lorraine, Ohio. Uh, and find out what exactly went on there mm-hmm. in terms of race relations. There's um, a scholar who will be at our conference uh, this year, Dave McMahon, who's done a little bit of research into African Americans in Des Moines and Omaha. And uh, he's found a, quite a bit of racial cooperation and uh, racial progressiveness in those cities. And uh, unfortunately, as I mentioned to you, I was recently uh, writing up an article about Richard Wright. Mm-hmm. I, w- I would say 90% of the work done on African Americans in the Midwest is on places like Chicago and Detroit. You, you, get, you don't really get down to the second tier level of cities and figure out what's going on there. But, but anyway, back to our point uh, about uh, Durda being interested in the Midwest because he was a Midwesterner. Another person who stepped forward and was extremely helpful was John Butler, who mm-hmm. was the president of the Organization of American Historians, and he just uh, turned over his presidency to his successor. But he was president last year, and, um, and this is the broad umbrella historical organization 
for all American historians. This is the successor to the Mississippi Valley Historical Association, which I mentioned was formed by Midwesterners in 1907. But John Butler um, heard about this and became extremely interested in it because he grew up in a little town in Minnesota. That's interesting. uh, About an hour or so from where I grew up in South Dakota. And so he recognized a lot of the things that we were talking about, and that's what prompted him to get engaged and to uh, be very supportive of this effort and to tell the OAH, hey, let's let's make the Midwestern History Association an affiliate of the OAH. So have you found that this the sort of uh, the crux of interest in, in the Midwest among scholars is at least at first, not so much intellectual, but personal. A lot of these scholars just come from Midwestern towns. They feel in their gut that there's some sort of significance to where they come from, and they want to sort of do good by their by their roots uh, to talk about this and to sort of be Midwestern scholars or historians. I think that's a very good way of putting it, Joe. I think there's a very strong personal element to this. And I think if you scratch the surface of a lot of scholars, uh, you'll find out that what they're studying and what they're dedicating decades of their life right. to studying and writing books about, that there is some personal connection. Mm-hmm. There's some personal connection to their life story that makes them interested in it. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's just human nature. So how about then, let's get back to talking about... Um, folks on the coast, I suppose, because I, in, in discussions about um, the Midwest, I, Andrew Seal puts it very interestingly. He says that sometimes Midwesterners can have a sort of, um, uh, oh, I, I can't remember the term, um, but he uh, uses, I think, defensive pride as a sort of this reflexive, this reaction that we that we tend to have where we feel like uh, any... Any criticisms we'll hear from people on the coast will be a form of condescension. We might have a little bit, some of us, I think probably may have a little insecurity about uh, uh, where we come from, perhaps. But I'm just, I'm wondering, how do you sell, for lack of a better term, the study of the Midwest to people who don't come from the Midwest and don't have any clear reason on the surface to be interested in Midwestern history? How do you get them maybe not just maybe not involved necessarily but interested in the field itself well i think one way to do it is to draw upon this emphasis in american history that and and you might be able to summarize um, the work done by scholars in american history in the last 30 years in a nutshell by saying we need to be inclusive right and we need to think hard about who has been left out Mm -hmm. of the traditional American historical narrative. And obviously there's been huge leaps forward in the last 30 years in terms of studying African-American history and Hispanics and gay and lesbian history, Mm -hmm. et cetera. You know, all people um, that have been to one extent or another left out of the traditional narrative. Well, um, not far behind those groups is the Midwest. Mm. And it's, um, it's very easy to demonstrate. If you look at how robust and strong and active fields like uh, Southern history are, 
or the Western history boom that took off in the 1980s, you know, a massive institution with great journals and a lot of uh, centers for the study mm -hmm. of the American West. I mean, I tried to add it up a couple of months ago, and I, I think there are 15 centers for the study of the American West. Mm -hmm. And there's probably 10 for the American South. And I didn't even look that hard at the American South. There might be more. And of course, we all know about how rich New England is with all these local historical societies, etc., because it has a very important history. But there is not one center for the study of the American Midwest mm -hmm. in this country. Now, I can understand why there's not a center for the study of the Midwest in Arizona or Maine, but in Michigan, right. in Illinois, in Iowa, there should be. And I think our major state uh, research institutions, um, higher education institutions, are dropping the ball on this. So the recent advances that you listed, the um, in, in inclusion of uh, uh, the history of race relations in America and of uh, history of gender um, inequities. So these are all very recent changes in historiography and in generally in, in academia. This is, especially in the past 30 years, has been a big, a big move. Uh, and it took a long time for academics to achieve these things in many ways because institutionally the academy is in, in many ways conservative. It has its own rules and regulations and systems and these are... Um, <clears throat> Uh, these are, are sort of bulwarks. Uh, what impediments do you see in the academy right now uh, in the way of the revival of Midwestern history, if any? Well, I think, as you say, there is a kind of uh, small-c conservative uh, right, right. Um, inertia in the academy uh, in the sense that you know we have our uh, pre-existing ways of doing things and to deviate from them is uh, that's always a tall order. But on top of that, on top of the natural inertia that comes along with any sort of bureaucracy, mm -hmm. uh, academic or, or non, on top of that, our institutions of higher learning are, are under a lot of stress mm -hmm. now. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of cutbacks. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Illinois. I don't know if you followed the crisis mm -hmm. going on there, but, you know, there... A lot of professors haven't been paid in several months, and there's this big budget long rise of jam. contingent labor, and yeah. adjunct faculty, and and I, th you know, there's other news this week about the potential shuttering of Northern Illinois University Press, which would be very sad because they've done quite a bit of work on the Midwest, uh, so that would be uh, one step backwards. But so I think that that is, um, I think that is an impediment. More, uh, more generally, I think there's probably some resistance from these other fields mm -hmm. where they see this emergence of this interest in the Midwest as something sort of uh, old school or maybe a little fuddy-duddy mm -hmm. or a little too nostalgic, right. perhaps. Nostalgia would be the word, the yeah. derogatory term. Yeah. But it, I, I don't see it that way i i think uh you can study all of these other things they're interested in race relations or or gender or whatever in the midwest mm -hmm. uh but all we're asking really is that people take 
or pay some attention to these regional dynamics. Mm-hmm. I mean, race relations in the Jim Crow South are a lot different than they were in Lorain, Ohio. Okay. And you can't just, um, for lack of a better term, essentialize the nature of race relations in the United States. Um, I've, I told you I've been working on this project about Richard Wright. I mean, Richard Wright moved to Illinois from Mississippi. And if you want to get a good sense of regional distinctions and regional differences, you know, read uh, descriptions of what life was like for African Americans in Mississippi versus uh, the Midwest. Major distinctions. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we're kind of losing uh, that kind of nuance or that kind of texture in our history. And I think we can help restore that. So we don't have too much uh, time left. John, I kind of want to ask you a few questions about yourself. Uh, first, where'd you, where'd you go to school? Where'd you go to college? I grew up on a farm in South Dakota. And uh, most farm kids where I'm from uh, automatically go to South Dakota State University. Mm-hmm. This is kind of the ag school mm-hmm. in South Dakota. And um, this is um, this is also where uh, a historian by the name of John E. Miller taught, and he kind of interested in me in not only history but uh, the history of this region, and kind of made the point that this region could be studied. And uh, you know, as John often points out, he was kind of a guerrilla scholar for many years. He just did stuff on his own. Mm-hmm. Because there was no institutional apparatus for studying the region. There was no place to go. There was no Midwestern history conference. And luckily, you, Joe, and the Howenstein Center have created this venue, this space, for scholars to come together and talk about the region. That didn't exist a couple of years ago. So did you go to grad school to be a Midwest, a sort of renegade Midwestern historian? or No, I didn't. I, I just loved history. Mm-hmm. I didn't really get down into the details of this Midwest question until many years later. I just loved history, and I, I've never really been able to explain uh, why I did. But it, um, it just clicks for some people. Some people love history, and they love reading history books and getting down into the archives and and in writing articles with 300 footnotes. Mm-hmm. Some people just love that, and I did. And so I went to uh, graduate school at the University of Iowa, and I was going to study with uh, Ellis Hawley, this longtime uh, historian of American political economy who actually grew up in a little town in Kansas called Cambridge, Kansas, <laughs> which you were recently debating on going to Cambridge. So, but that, that uh, name came from, from the great institution in England. Mm-hmm. I should say this, by the way, since we're both mixed, my, uh, <laughs> my Irish grandfather yeah. grew up in the town of Oxford, Ohio, oh, or Oxford, Iowa, I should say, in Johnson County, uh, Iowa. You're uh, mixed. What, are you Irish and? German. I'm my not, yeah. dad's German. Uh, my mom's Irish. She's a Barry B. A R R Y. I'm a Irish, German, and English, which is a really interesting. So yeah. half my family oppressed the other half uh, <laughs> for 800 long years. So Tom Hagen, are you talking? Tom, the Godfather, right? Yeah, that's Tom Hagen. Yeah, yeah he was Irish German. 
he was yeah, yeah was the, the story the was that he was, the, exactly that he was adopted by uh yeah anyways i never knew the backstory on yeah Tom he Hagen. was he was adopted uh by that family and became consigliere but that's why he could never become the godfather that was supposed to be the godfather part three apparently that's what i heard it was all about tom Hagen. but then they couldn't set up a good contract with duval so it ended up sort of getting into this weird oh that's subplot that's that really no one considers part three part of the oh I know part three was it's, it's absolutely so, it was horrible. horrible. It was horrific. Um, but Tom Hagen, uh, he was the one who always had to keep Sonny under control. Exactly. It's just Didn't work business, out. Sonny. Yeah. Calm down. It seems like kind of a German personality. That, it was very uh, yeah, not so much more German definitely. There was more German in Tom Hagen's character than Irish, I suppose. But I'm such I'm essentializing. Please don't quote me though. This is recorded. Um, <laughs> um, so you work. At some point, you must have made a transition into politics because you work for uh, or with uh, uh, Senator Thune uh, in South Dakota. What happened there? Well, I was uh, teaching uh, history at South Dakota State University, and uh, this would have been in 03, 04, right in there. And um, I just happened, this is kind of an odd thing, this, this makes the point about how small South Dakota is. If you're from a state like well, there aren't many states like South Dakota, but if you're from South Dakota, chances are you know and you run into someone at the airport. Mm-hmm. Chances are if you start talking, you can figure out people you know. You, you might know each other or you might uh, know a lot of the same people. Anyway, it's a very small state. Uh, turns out John Thune, who I had known for several years, gets elected to the U.S. Senate. Again, this is kind of how small South Dakota is. And he said... Uh, Hey, this would be, we're going to set up our Senate office. And it was a very famous Senate race. It was kind of high profile. And I actually wrote a book about it called Dashiell versus Thune, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a historical treatment, trying to put it in the broadest terms possible, this particular Senate race. Uh, Anyway, he asked me to go to work for him. And it, it worked out perfectly because I was commuting to my job teaching and, uh, you know, no offense to, my academic job but you know they don't pay that well Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it uh it was an increase in pay and it was it was fun and it's a lot of fun and you know if you're i was thinking about this um the other day if you're a regionalist if you're someone who's really interested in a space and a region and what it's all about and its history it's a great thing to work in politics because you're always covering every little nook and cranny of the state. You're going to places in the state and learning about things there that you wouldn't otherwise learn about. Um, you know, if you're just working in a corporate job in Sioux Falls, you know, you often go to Omaha and Minneapolis and, uh, you know, you watch CNBC. Mm-hmm. But if you're in politics, you pay attention to all the little towns in the state and the history of the state and maybe you work on speeches about, you know, prominent events that are going on in the state so it's it's very conducive to regionalism oh, to work in politics so your your so your mo your modus operandi as a as a person in politics does that um affect your work now in the academy because you're working in in, in a sense alongside the academy right now with your work at the uh mha well to date, it's worked uh, very well together. I mean, there hasn't been, um, I mean, I think one thing you do in South Dakota, or at least I do, is I 
tend to teach classes related to the state, the history of South Dakota. As I mentioned, the reason this whole project began about the Midwest was I was teaching a class about South Dakota. And that led me into this whole question of mm. what is the Midwest like? And so as to date, it's all worked together very nicely. What's the future of regionalism in Midwestern history in the American Academy? Are you optimistic? Right now I'm optimistic. I think uh, this conference, which I want to thank you again yeah. and thank you, the Howenstein yeah. Center and everybody for doing this because it really brings together uh, scholars who otherwise would not have come together. Mm -hmm. They may have drifted into other topics. They may have not been thinking about the Midwest. But the longer we can keep this going, the longer we can have this venue, the longer these journals exist and create an incentive for people to write about the region, I think regional studies in the Midwest are only going to grow. I, I know for a fact, and I know this is true of myself, several years ago, that I had considered projects and, and uh, articles and even books uh, relating to the region, but I, if you're a scholar or a writer, you're always thinking in the back of your mind, am I going to have a publisher for this? Can I find somebody who will publish this article that I'm going to spend a year of my life on? And so it's a strong deterrent to taking on those projects if you don't have an obvious place to send it. But now we have uh, uh, Middle West Review, Studies in Midwestern History. We have this venue for presenting papers. I think a couple of more university presses are going to start series or at least emphases in Midwestern studies. So uh, we're creating a space for this conversation to take place, a space that didn't exist, you know, three years ago. John, thanks very much for talking with me. My pleasure, Joe. You just listened to our interview with John Lauk, author of The Lost Region, Toward a Revival of Midwestern History. If you liked our conversation, be sure to check out the Midwestern Historical Association's webpage and pick up a copy of John's book. You can also attend the next Midwestern History Conference called Finding the Lost Region, which will be held on June 7th, 2017 at Grand Valley State University. You can learn more about, it, about that event, which will be co-hosted by the Howenstein Center on the center's website at howensteincenter.org. Common Ground is a podcast brought to you by the Howenstein Center at Grand Valley State University. The center's director and producer of this podcast is Gleaves Whitney. Travis Wheeler edits the podcast and Andrew Whitney composed our theme music. The Howenstein Center is inspired by Ralph W. Howenstein's life of leadership and service. For more information about Ralph and our programs, visit howensteincenter.org and follow Howenstein GVSU on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Joseph Hogan, and this has been Common Ground.